Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's Transfiguration Day. It's a day in the church calendar that sometimes goes overlooked, but I think it's a good day to pause, to reflect on the event of the the season. I'm reminded on Transfiguration Day of an event that happened when I was a child. I think I was probably in the third or fourth grade. I don't remember the exact details because it wasn't that important in the grand scheme of my life. But I remember that some, for some reason during the day's science class, we had talked about astronomy. I think there was some interesting event that was occurring in the night sky that night, and they wanted to take advantage of something exciting in, our, in the real world to you know, make the, the scientific spirit within us well up with uh, curiosity. And so they sent us home with these little, like, 12-inch plastic uh, telescopes, you know, things that would end up in the trash probably the next day. But that night, it was like the coolest thing. It had like a, a telescoping tooth, in, you know, you could like fold it in half and open it up. And little Scott in the third and fourth grade thought that was about the coolest thing ever. So I had that with me all the time throughout the rest of the day. Went home that night and was super excited to see whatever celestial event there was going on in the sky. I don't quite remember, but I do remember that evening going out into my backyard, and I remember looking up into the night sky, and I could see some stars. You know, nowadays we don't see that many stars in the sky. If you've ever been out in the country before on a clear night, there are many more stars than we can see here in the St. Louis area. But I could see some stars that evening, and I remember looking at lots of them. I mean, there was probably, you know, more than I could count in the sky, and I was looking around, and I think I asked my mom, I said, Mom, which one is the brightest star in the sky? And I looked at all of them, and I kind of pointed at a few that I thought might be the brightest. By the way, do you know what the brightest star in the sky is? I heard the North Star. That's a good guess, but it's actually wrong. I thought that was right, too, until I looked it up. The brightest star in the sky is actually Sirius. Sirius, which I don't even know if I could point Sirius out in the night sky, but apparently that's the brightest star, not the North Star. So I was confused about that to begin with, but my mom didn't know that. I didn't know that uh, at the time. I looked up into the, the sky and saw all these bright stars, but I remember my mom's response. My mom said, well... The brightest star in the sky is none of the ones you see right now. The brightest star in the sky is the sun. Because the sun is a star, and it's obvious that when the sun is out, there's no other stars visible in the night sky to us. This is the kind of radiance, I think, that we are talking about when Jesus goes up on the mountain of transfiguration. It's it's at nighttime. The stars are in the sky. They go up on the mountaintop, Peter, James, and John with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed. He goes through a metamorphosis. He he becomes something other than what he has been, or he perhaps reveals the true nature of who he's always been, but has been concealing. And we see Jesus arrayed in splendor. Mark says, with with robes so white that launders could not create them. Another version says his, he was as white as snow. Another version says that he shone like the sun. 
He was so bright, he would be very hard to look at. He's so bright that none of the other lights that were shining around would have been notable or visible. Why do we have this very peculiar account of three of Jesus' disciples going up on a mountaintop with Jesus when Moses and Elijah show up? It seems like this weird kind of, almost like a, a parable or something. You know, it's like, it's like the beginning of a bad joke or something. Jesus goes with Peter, James, and John onto a mountain, and there's a priest and a rabbi or something like that. It, it's a, a peculiar event that doesn't seem like it, it really meshes with the, the kind of earthy, human aspect of the Gospel of Mark. The rest of the Gospel of Mark, it's just, it's, it's human tale after human tale. It's, it's, it's very real and very uh, apparent to us what's going on. It's matter of fact, but we have this account right smack dab in the middle of Mark where we see this miraculous thing happening. The transfigured Lord Jesus Christ stands before Peter, James, and John, and there beside him is Moses, and there on the other side beside him is Elijah. Why is this occurring? What's going on here? Well, if you've read the Gospel of Mark before, and if you haven't read the Gospel of Mark, i got a plug for you here. In our Coffee and Clergy series, Pastor Doug and I did, we did the Gospel of Mark not too terribly long ago, and it's worth listening to if you haven't listened to it. We walk through it, and we talk about this as part of that discussion. But when you look at the transfiguration account in the context of the entirety of the book of Mark, if you have a Bible on your phone, or if you have one that you can pull out, or when you go home today, pull out Mark chapter 1, and you'll see that the beginning of the, the, the gospel of Mark is all about a question. It is a three-word question, and it is a question that is the most important question any human being will ever ask. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is what Mark is all about from the first letter to the last letter. It is about this question. Who is Jesus? At the beginning of Mark, we see Jesus sort of enter into the story as a background character. Because at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we see John the Baptist at work, and people come up to him and they ask him, who, who are you? Then they ask him, who is this Jesus? Then they ask, and throughout the Gospel of Mark, who is this guy who's doing all of these things? Who is Jesus? In the very beginning, the very first words of Mark... Mark makes it very plain and very clear for you. It's a spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. And then a few verses later, we see John the Baptist bring Jesus into the water and, and baptize him. And we have God coming through the clouds, a dove descending from on high, and we hear the words, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Why am I talking about baptism? Why am I talking about the entire gospel of Mark on Transfiguration Day? Because Transfiguration is the hinge point of the entire gospel of Mark. Up until now, the gospel of Mark has kind of alluded to the fact that Jesus might be the son of God. 
There's been some miraculous things that have happened, and we see some evidence to support that claim. But here in Mark 9, right smack dab in the middle, the whole thing flips over on its head, and there is no doubt as to who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of the living God. And once more, we have words coming down from the cloud as Jesus is arrayed in all of his glory and his splendor, as he shines radiant like the sun, proclaiming, this is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I love. So we see Moses over here. We see Elijah over here. We see Peter, James, and John in terror, lying on the ground, looking and beholding all of these things. What's going on here? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Why not any other character from the Bible? Why not King David? Why don't we have Adam? Why is Jacob not here? God has chosen these two people, Moses and Elijah, for very particular reason. You may have heard before that the reason is because Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and Jesus represents the gospel. And then the, the disciples represent the church, carrying out and advancing the law, the prophets, and the gospel. And I think that's a neat image, and it's certainly one that leaves an imprint on us. But perhaps there's something even more going on. Why Moses? What is it about Moses that makes him worthy to come onto the earth, to stand next to the fully transfigured Lord and Savior and God? Well, when we look at the narrative of Moses, when we look at all that he has done, all that he has said in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we see that there are many times where Moses comes face to face, and maybe not face to face, but certainly in the presence before the face of God, arrayed in all of his glory and all of his splendor. God comes to Moses in a burning bush. God calls Moses up to a high mountaintop, sound familiar? Where he descends upon Moses in a cloud, sound familiar? And in that cloud shines a bright light that's so radiant that when Moses comes down the mountain, he himself is reflecting the glory of God so intensely that he has to wear a veil. That people can't look at him because he's too bright. We see that Moses lived a life of honor to God, but there were many moments where Moses butted heads with God. Where Moses tried to shine brightly in and of himself. Where he tried to make it about Moses. But God forgave Moses as he forgives us all. God elevated Moses through his humility and God made Moses an example for you and for me of how we should trust in God and walk in his presence. When Moses dies, he is given the honor so great that no one knows where he was buried because God himself put Moses into the ground. God himself took the honor of burying Moses and no one knows to this day where Moses was buried. So his death was special. It was set apart. It was elevated above all others. Then we see Elijah. Why Elijah of all people? 
Now, Elijah is a, is a very interesting character from the Bible, but I wouldn't necessarily say that he's kind of like the main guy. Is he really on the level of, of Moses or, or Jesus, for that matter? Why is he there? Well, when you read through First and Second Kings and you come to understand the identity of Elijah and what God was trying to do through Elijah, you see a lot of the same kinds of images. You see that Elijah was in the presence of God, that Elijah interacted and intersected with the glory and the power of God very often. The image I have up there is when Elijah calls down fire from heaven to put down the prophets of Baal. The interesting thing about that is when he prays, he says, God, show that you are God and show, O God, that I am your prophet. And we see that Elijah, he wanted to shine brightly. He wanted to be the one upon whom all the light was shining. And he wanted to show everyone that he was the guy. He, he has this moment where he goes into the city where he talks to the king and tries to get the king to turn away from Baal and back to God. And he figures, I just showed them a mighty sign from God. This is going to be a snap. But the king doesn't change his mind. And so Elijah gets so bent out of shape, he goes out onto a mountain. He says, I just want to die, God. And God reveals to Elijah his glory and his splendor and his presence that is so powerful and so mighty that Elijah is terrified and afraid in the face of what God is showing him. And he goes up onto a mountaintop. Sound familiar? And he sees the splendor and the radiant light and the glory of God. Sound familiar? There's a reason why Moses and Elijah are standing with a transfigured Jesus up on the mountaintop as a cloud descends and his glorious splendor is arrayed in their midst. And most importantly, as the word of God descends from heaven, proclaiming his glory and his goodness, now in the person standing before you, Jesus the Christ. So, we know why Moses and Elijah are there, but why did Jesus bring Peter, James, and John up to the mountain? What about Peter? What is it about Peter that, that is, gives him any kind of worth to show up before this mighty and powerful event that's going on? When Peter sees what's going on, it, the, the, the scripture in Mark says that he and the disciples were terrified and they didn't know what to do. And Peter's scrambling for like, do I get down on my knees and bow? Do I, uh, do I run away in terror and hide? Do I walk up and, and give Jesus a hug? He's so bright, I don't know what to do. And so he does the only thing he can think to do. He says, wait a minute, this could be awesome. This could be my moment. This could be my time to shine. And so he, he allows himself to, to build up his courage just a little bit. And he says, what is going on here is really good, Jesus. Let's build a tent so that we can keep Moses here. We can keep Elijah here. And, and you can stay here. And you can reign on this mountain in a transfigured and mighty, glorious, powerful state forever. And I will be happy just being present here. I will, I will be the one who advocates for your glory. And God, the Father has to shut Peter up. Peter is blabbering and he doesn't know what to do because he's afraid and he's full of emotion and he's, he's allowing his, his yapper to yap and yap and yap and something awesome is happening right before his eyes, but he's not paying attention to any of it. Instead, he's 
taking a moment to, to say, this is my time to shine. This is my time to show what I'm made of, what I'm worth. And God tells Peter, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Shut your mouth. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Pay attention to what's going on. Don't try and make it your moment. Don't try and make it your time to shine. And so for Peter, he's put in his place a little bit here. God love Peter, man. He is such a powerful example of the Bible of what a man of faith looks like, but he's also such a potent example of what it looks like when we trip ourselves up. Peter is one of my heroes, man, because I'll never have a faith like Peter But man, I will never screw up the way Peter screws up either. Peter is an awesome example for us of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he gets it in the end. But in this particular story and in many stories in the Bible, he misses the mark big time. But through his example, we profit. God says to Peter, shut your mouth. Open your eyes, open your ears. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And he draws us back into the narrative of Mark, asking the question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Who is the son? Who is the S-O-N? But who in our example from the beginning of this sermon is our S-U-N? Who is the one who is shining so brightly that all other lights are diminished? Who is the one shining so brightly in your life today that all the other sources of light that are trying to shine out of you or shine onto you are put asunder? My hope today is that you acknowledge and you see that that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one whom God has sent to be the ultimate light that shines in your life. And so the commandment goes out to Peter to shut his mouth and to open his eyes and ears and listen to Jesus is the same one that comes to us today. So often we take opportunities in our life to say, this is my time to shine. This is my time to chirp up. This is my time to post something on social media. This is my time to show what I'm worth, what I know, what I am accountable for, what I am deserving of. And God says to you and me in those moments, shut your mouth. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Come to see the true and radiant light of my Son, Jesus Christ. The one who puts all other lights to shame. This reminds me of the example that comes from John the Baptist. In John chapter 3, after Jesus has begun his ministry and things start happening and people stop looking all around them at the lights that are dimly shining here and there and starts to see this amazing light which is starting to to permeate in their midst. They see Jesus' power and might through his words and through his actions. They come to John and they say, John, people are going to Jesus now to repent. People are going to Jesus now to be baptized. What do we do? That's like their corner of the market. That's the thing that they do. And now Jesus is stealing it from them. And then John 
in a beautiful way, shows the faith that he has and the trust that he has in his Savior, Jesus. And it's why Jesus says, no one has ever been born like John the Baptist, nor ever will be again. No one has ever been on the earth with the faith of John the Baptist. It's a proclamation by Jesus because John, when he has the opportunity to push back and say, no, now's my time to shine. This baptismal work, this is the work that's mine to be done. This, this was called a repentance, this is mine. Instead of doing that, John says exactly what God would have him say. He shuts his mouth and he opens his ears and, he, and his eyes to see the light before him. And he says, no, he must become greater and I must become less. He must increase and I must diminish. His light must be allowed to shine all the brighter and my light must be diminished and brought low. We acknowledge about ourselves that we're these little pinprick-looking stars up in the sky that barely shine through. But during the day, you can't see a star in the sky. Not even Sirius A, the brightest star that shines. You can't see it. All you can see is the sun. All you can see is the bright, radiant sun shining in the sky. And John the Baptist knows this. He says, I must be put away. I must be shelved. I must be diminished. I must become less so that Jesus Christ and all of his glory, all of his goodness, all of his saving mercy for you and for me might increase so that he might be the thing that shines in my life. Who's shining in your life? What, what events, what people in your life are the ones that are shining through, that are distracting you, getting your attention? Put those away. Allow your own light to diminish, your own light to decrease, so that the light of Christ might shine all the more brightly. And then so that light of Christ might also shine through you. Amen. Let us pray. God, Father, I, I thank you for your mighty work that you have done for us. We thank you for this transfiguration. We thank you for the beauty, beauty of the event as we see the glory of Christ displayed before us. As we look forward to his death and his resurrection, we thank you, O oh God, that you have reminded us that Jesus is at the center of your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would help him to shine most brightly in our lives, that we might become less so that he might become greater. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.